It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn. Professor Christina Greer is away today. And with me is Alex Brooklyn. Hi, Harry. In a few minutes, we're going to have the latest in our occasional FAQ Books Club with the great Alec McGillis talking about fulfillment, winning and losing in one-click America. But before we get into that, it's been... It's been a crazy week of news in the last 12 hours or so. So at noon on Wednesday, but we're in the middle of this recording, the New York Times broke the story that federal investigators had executed a search warrant at the apartment of lawyer, former mayor, and former Southern District U.S. Attorney Rudy Giuliani. They'd seized his electronic devices And what the Times says is an extraordinary move for prosecutors to take against a lawyer, let alone a lawyer for a former president, that marks a major turning point in the long-running investigation into Mr. Giuliani. So, oh my, lots more to come there, I'm sure. Uh, Alex. So this week, uh, some sad news for New York. We lost an assembly seat in Congress. The Census Bureau announced on Monday that we will shrink by one delegate starting in the 2022 election. And we've lost seats continuously now for eight of these cycles. And there was this expectation that we might well lose two this time. But dot, dot, dot. But we did it. It turns out. I mean, the margin of how we lost this seat is absurdly low. We apparently lost this seat by 89 residents, which, of course, sparked a whole lot of, I hope your think pieces were worth it, and da-da-da-da-da. About leaving New York, and some people wanted to blame Cuomo, and other people wanted to blame Trump. The thing Cuomo actually deserves serious blame for here is that with the pandemic and other stuff happening, he didn't give a damn about the census. He didn't put time, money, or his public platform into this at all, whereas de Blasio actually did. And I assure you, that effort would have been worth 89 people statewide. And and this will cost uh, New York real political power and, and money over the uh, next decade. And the Daily News reported that more homeless New Yorkers than ever were living in the shelter system and trying to... Uh, reach out to homeless New Yorkers and undocumented New Yorkers and New Yorkers that don't necessarily have English as their first language or a a proficiency in English was a big focus of the mayor uh, to his credit. So yeah, that's a bummer. But Cuomo is saying now, kind of, you know, rolling it back, saying like, it's a minor mistake and there could be some legal action that the state can take to maybe get that seat back. Uh, I'm not sure. It's so, so close they can try, but it, it's really unlikely because effectively, if we get that seat back, another state is losing it. And so the the, the inclination to accept the uh, the full count and the numbers is very strong, and that would really be an uphill fight. Um, Cuomo had some CDC COVID-related news this week. Yeah. 
Cuomo announced that everyone over the age of 16 can pretty much walk into a lot of vaccination sites without an appointment and either get a vaccine right then or make an appointment for the future. I think that there is a renewed sense of urgency with vaccinations considering what is happening over in India and Bangladesh. And I think that you know, amping up our response as a first entry point into the U.S. as uh, as New York, as we're trying to build up tourism, is a pretty good decision. On the heels of that decision, the J&J vaccine will be available once again starting Saturday. There'll be a warning on the bottle about the blood clots. So everything seems to track there. The state legislator wants to strike down some of Cuomo's emergency powers, especially forcing like bars to serve food with beer, which has been like, you know, probably a huge point of contention with bars that all of a sudden needed to get like toaster ovens and serve terrible store-bought hot dogs to people who just wanted to drink beer. So Scott Stringer, mayoral candidate has been accused of sexual harassment by an unpaid intern from 2001 campaign. Her name is Jean Kim Stringer, who has been married since 2010, issued a statement Tuesday denying the allegation. This story is still developing. Um, We record on Wednesdays midday and Ms. Kim is scheduled to have a press conference later today. So that story is still going. Um, This relates a little bit to what we're about to talk about with Alec McGillis. In Community Board 7 on the Upper West Side, there has been introduced a resolution, the Let the Workers Go, which would basically let gig economy workers who are outside all day going back and forth on bikes go to the bathroom in the restaurants that they serve. And basically a bunch of Upper West Side you know, quote unquote, liberals shot it down, calling it things like crazy. Uh, Streets blog reported uh, some people were calling it punitive to the restaurants up there, uh, proving what uh, Christina Greer always says about the Upper West Side, that, uh, you know, it's not quite as progressive as anyone thinks. And that brings us to uh, fulfillment and how things are working in this brave new economy we have that the pandemic has accelerated. Uh, Alex, do you use Amazon much? I really don't. I don't like it. I order locally. Everything I do, I try to go. I have the luxury of living in a city where I can find things locally. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, most maternity stores closed There's like one really expensive one that sells super lacy stuff and pregnancy dresses that look like, you know, Jackie Onassis would have worn them. And I, you know, when you just need a nursing bra or some underwear and you don't have the big box stores in New York, there have been a couple times over the last few months where I have ordered from Amazon, much to my shame. I am constantly shaming people for using Amazon, and I myself now have two sets of underpants and some maternity underpants and some calcium pills that I was unable to get in person or order from another place. So with that, let's bring in Alec McGillis, my old uh, friend from the Knight Wallace Fellowship in Michigan, actually got me to leave New York for the one year of my adult life a decade ago. 
Alec, welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Fulfillment is, is really terrific and sprawling across the country and, and history and these series of themes. But for people who haven't read it yet, let me, let me start with a very functional question and what I've been trying to convince my wife about, which is why should people consider not using Amazon Prime? And what are the uh, impacts of that sort of the negative impacts of that flywheel they're suggesting where the more people who use it, the cheaper everything is, uh, the faster you get everything and the better off everyone supposedly is in, in the model they're setting up uh, in which they're both a marketplace and a big seller in that marketplace. Well, I, you know, I haven't really gone so far as to suggest that people should totally boycott or totally abstain. You know, I myself very occasionally use use Amazon. I don't belong to Prime, but um, you know, occasionally use them if I can't find something somewhere else. But but I do think that there's a need for some kind of restraint and moderation, especially coming after after this crazy year where we just a lot of us just embrace the one click kind of life in all its forms with such alacrity and such extremity, really. And you know, the reason why why moderation and restraint are, are called for is this whole mode of of living and consuming undermines american life on so many different levels it just it causes a kind of degradation and deterioration starting with of course just the the local the local businesses the loss of tax base that comes with the kind of sucking out of commerce and and business activity from from your local economy to essentially Seattle. I mean, to put it very bluntly, the reason why we've ended up, one reason we've ended up with these extraordinary disparities that I write about in the book is that we have commerce and business activity across different sectors of the economy that are now so dominated by these giants where the where that commerce and prosperity and money is, is essentially just kind of hoovered out of all, all these local places, cities and towns, into the places where these giants are based. So the, the crazy hyper prosperity that you see in Seattle is not unrelated to the struggles of, of all these left behind cities and towns that have seen commerce or daily commerce pulled away from them, you know, for, not first by the Walmarts of the world, but now, but now by Amazon. And so you end up with this, this deterioration of, of, of the local economy, the deterioration of the local tax base, which is, which is exacerbated by all the tax giveaways that Amazon gets when it comes in with the warehouses and the data centers. But it's more than just that. It's more than just the tax base. It's also just the, the, this, all the interactions that, that come with sort of engaging in your physical space around you in the, in the, in the community that you live. And that, that's, you know, what, when I'm asked about, should we be abstaining? My, my answer is not just about commerce, not just about where we're buying, buying our crap, but, but also, just generally re-engaging with the physical world around us in all its forms and getting out of this hunker down mode that we've been in. Because, you know, whether it's, you know, going back to the movies in the theater or, you know, these, all the things that make life in our towns and cities worthwhile and give us character, you know, a general re-engagement is so important just to reconnect with the places and people around us. But then, so then that's, that's the sort of, that's the local business effect and in, in the effect on, on commerce. And then more broadly, there's everything else that, that the book describes the, the effect on the third party sellers who are, who are feeling this extraordinary pressure now to sell on Amazon because that's where everyone seems to be going to buy their stuff. So 
so they feel like they have no choice but to give up these 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 just draconian uh, commissions and fees to Amazon to to be able to sell on their site. Um, and you describe that as like a uh, in effect a private tax at, at, at a couple absolutely. of points, and from this company that that is doing its best not to pay local or national taxes itself, which is which is sort right. of remarkable. It's fifteen percent, and then going up from there. Yep. Exactly. It's like they're, they're, they just, it's gotten to the point where it's almost like they just exact their, their cut, get their take of just about any kind of commerce, uh, increasingly vast swaths of commerce in the country, whether it's through the third party sellers who are now about 60% of the total sales on the site are, are from these third party sellers who feel like they have no choice but to sell on the site and to give up these, these huge fees and commissions. And, and so it's really as if Amazon is simply just taking its slice of all different forms of commercial activity in the country, whether it's those guys or whether it's the, the data centers where, you know, all the stuff that's flowing through there, Amazon gets their cut of that. Um, it's, it's really, it's extraordinary. And it's, you know, at a level that, that, you know, Rockefeller would be, would be impressed by. It blew me away reading this to, to see how Amazon gets these places in as a marketplace and then has access to what they're selling, exactly who they're selling it for, how much, and then sort of jumps in with their own products. So, so they're making the market and then competing with everyone else in the market. And you mentioned at one point that, that internally they're referring to uh, their partners, as they call them externally, as, as internal competitors. Uh, Seattle, incidentally, you know, now has, I, I think, the third highest homeless population in America as it's become incredibly affluent and, and unaffordable. Um, I think there's two big great divergences that the book centers on in certain ways. There's this divergence between big cities, national and sort of regional winners that are sucking up resources and everywhere else. You've got one place where the conversation's about gentrification and this other where it's often about uh, abandonment. And then there's also this divergence you get to right at the end as you're catching up with the virus between the big tech companies, the big five, and everyone else that that they added $1.7 trillion to their uh, market cap, you know, at the same time that the the virus had the the, the rest of the national economy contracting by by ten percent and a quarter, it's just two totally different universes. I'm hoping, and by the way, I'm heartbroken that we're we're doing this over Zoom, uh, as to some of these themes. But I'm hoping you can explain for for New Yorkers and like people who who get some of the convenience of this and just having the toilet paper or the groceries or whatever show up at their houses. Why? This new Amazon economy is actually damaging for the big cities and the uh, "quote unquote" winners in this dynamic. So, the, I mean, you you described the two divergences re- really well, and and the book really started out being about the one divergence, the divergence between between places, between winner take all cities and left behind places, and that's what, that I've been seeing growing for years, going around the country as a reporter and getting. You know, very upset about, very agitated about, and wanting to write about it, and then and then deciding to to frame the story of that divergence through Amazon, partly because the tech giants um, help explain the regional divergence. I mean, that the sort of key of the book, in a way, is the key link that it seeks to make is that is that these two different problems that we've been talking about separately are in fact connected. That that's that regional inequality that's had such a deleterious effect on our politics because it does breed resentment and it breeds alienation and it breeds lack of understanding and you know, incomprehension um, and, and divides of all sorts. 
is in fact connected to to this other problem that we've been talking about, which is e- economic concentration and monopoly, and and those that those are linked. And and I and 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 I my hope is that with the book that we start talking about them more together. And and the and the reason why regional inequality matters for for people in in, in New York in the winter cities is that is that. I, you know, that the book, what the book describes is that this, that these, these huge divides are not healthy for either set of places. They're obviously not, obviously not healthy for the places that are, that have been left behind and are struggling with, with blight and abandonment and, and, and sadness and resentment and despair of various sorts. And, but it, they're also, it's also not good for the winner take all cities, not only because it has distorted our politics and helped bring us Donald Trump. But also because it has simply made life in a lot of the winners take all cities increasingly difficult. It's, um, just increasingly unaffordable, um, congested, causes massive displacement of longtime residents, chiefly black residents in cities like Washington and Seattle, the, the two winner take all cities that I focus on in the book. Um, or, you know, of course, San Francisco, which had a whole movie made out of the fact that it basically has so few black people residents left in the city. Um, and so unaffordability, congestion, loss of character, um, all these, these, all these effects of hyper prosperity. And, and what bother, what has bothered me a lot about the affordability debate in the winner take all cities these recent years is that you have this vicious back and forth intra liberal, intra left debate in these cities between sort of the, the supply people and the rent control people. And that's somewhat oversimplifying, but, but basically people who say we got to deal with the, with housing affordability by, by just building a whole lot more, even that, even if it means having to take on the NIMBYs. And then, and then you have people who say no, better just to, you know, do it through, you know, through some kind of forms of rent control and regulation. And, and this is goes, carries on and on and on. And it gets, you know, it gets very vicious. And, and what it, what's missed in that debate is the broader context, which is that you wouldn't have such an extreme affordability crisis in these cities if there wasn't, if there wasn't so much, so much wealth and prosperity and growth concentrated in them. And, and, you know, to put it bluntly in the context of the book, it's insane that you have in Washington, DC, this huge affordability crisis and people struggling to buy row houses that now cost seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars, if not more. When just up the road, 40 miles up the road, we're demolishing by the hundreds, by the thousands, exactly the same sorts of row houses, if not nicer ones, because Baltimore's architecture was nicer. Um, and, and, and some of that, those bricks are going from, from one city some to those the bricks other. Are actually going from one city to the other to, um, to create sort of faux historical facades in, in overpriced condo developments in DC. And that, that imbalance, that sort of out of whackness is, is what is what is at the core of the book. It, the, the notion that it's not, it's really not good for, for either set of places that things have gotten so, so off kilter. The, uh, the condo place in DC, part of it, I believe is the uh, stables. Um, as it happens, I live right by the only remaining stable, Kensington stables by Prospect Park, which, uh, is a sort of lovely, sometimes rundown place, you know, that's a very small business and it's sort of held on there. And then there's a big luxury building that went up across the street. That's the Kestrel. And I promise you, if the stables were not there anymore and there wasn't a, a smell of horse shit and, uh, right. and, and an active stable that that building would have been 
the stables, and instead they, they had to get as far away from that animal exactly. as, uh, <laughs> as they could. So one one big theme in the book that you bring up a lot actually with smaller places and places where Amazon is is putting warehouses and sometimes in more affluent areas data centers uh, is the secrecy uh, that they have as they're extorting these local governments in my view and demanding really significant uh, tax benefits and 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 other services from from cities while while, while not paying into the maintenance of local stuff, for instance, for EMS workers who might need to visit those warehouses, especially around Christmas season. And I thought a lot about New York in the context of this, which likes to think of itself as a really big, sophisticated place that isn't like the, the yokels. And you could say the same about Arlington and the greater D.C. area, where Amazon's HQ2 deal, in which I think every big northeastern city except Baltimore, ended up as a finalist, like all the winter cities <laughs> – um, that th- th- we were the yokels, that this all got negotiated entirely behind closed doors and then presented as a uh, fait accompli with, I think, $3 billion in total tax breaks here. And, and then, of course, that got derailed, uh, the New York part of it, at, at least. But it, it was really striking to see how far along that had gone. And then the extent to which after that didn't happen and like uh, Mercer puts up like, thanks a lot, AOC sign in Times Square and all that, that – not just Facebook and Google, which essentially owns Chelsea now, but Amazon, too, have just continued this massive expansion into the city um, at the same time that – sorry, this is the last thing. It's, it's all ping-ponging together in my brain. Um, the same time that the local news, which has been really damaged by, by big tech and by Google and Facebook and their advertising businesses in particular – Right, the the daily news is about to get sold to this uh, vulture capitalist chain, Alden. I read a column there. I prefer to not see this happen. Every other city that the Tribune company that owns the news is in has had some meritorious buyer raise their hand, and some of those might be better than others. I'm I'm not in love with benevolent billionaires, but hey, uh, in New York, really strikingly, nobody has has even gestured an interest in the news. Which to me speaks to this breakdown of local players who are actually interested in what's happening locally, whereas these large tech companies very much are separate from that. Google is probably the most involved, but Alec, when you go into their building, you have to sign a NDA, a disclosure thing to walk in and go past like the security part saying you're not going to say anything about it. I'll say a few things like they have a, a cafeteria that's like hundreds of thousands of square feet and like a cornucopia of human wonderfulness and everything. It's just like super gorgeous, and that's their whole sales pitch. Like their salespeople are just regular lousy salespeople, but they're like, look at this. This is what human curiosity has created, and it's all free to you. But anyways, uh, sorry that that became a a spiel rather than a question. Um, It's interesting to see these companies continue to invest here when other people are looking to flee the real estate, when the real concerns that Midtown may never recover and the business district and be what it was again. And big tech is still looking to just fill more and more space and it's becoming more and more dominant here without really playing a role in our our local politics or process. Right. No, it's such a good point that that they've only doubled down in a way in – in, in New York and other winter cities in this past year. And it's actually one big reason why I discounted a lot of the talk about the, the pandemic causing some kind of great dispersal and, and, actually, you know, mitigating some of the, the, the disparities that I write about in the book. Because we, what you saw, the actual decisions being made by the tech giants 
suggested that they had lost no confidence in the, in the winter cities. And in fact, were were only kind of accelerating the, the moves there. You're, it's not just New York. I mean, New York is, was, is a great example though, because you have, despite HQ2 not happening, despite them pulling up out, you know, in their, in their fit of peak, Amazon has still gone ahead and bought the Lauren Taylor building, which is of course so symbolic. A couple thousand jobs there. Facebook with the, the post office again. How, how symbolic is that? That they're in the post office, right? Um, and then, and then, as you said, Google taking over Chelsea, and and then you're seeing other winter cities too. Boston, um, in, Amazon, in the Port Authority building, by the way, and Chelsea, right. which was the iconic, you know, yes. actually building physical things, right? Um, and. In Boston, Amazon is now up to 7,000 salaried employees in Boston. Um, they're, they just announced a couple thousand more at the Seaport District there. Um, so, I mean, that's right there. That's almost like a third of an HQ2. They're only sort of growing more in, in the winter cities and whether it's called HQ2 or not. On the tech, on the, on the secrecy, I mean, it's just astonishing. I mean, that was one of the things that jumped out at me so much throughout my reporting, just all these pledges of secrecy, demands for secrecy from the local officials as they were negotiating the tax deals with them. One local official in Southwest Ohio apologizing to the company for having dared, had had a quote in the local paper about the coming warehouse project and, and to explain to them that she did not speak to the reporter. She just let something slip at a public meeting and don't worry, it won't happen again. Um, when I applied for a job at Amazon, so I was considering taking a job there, the reason I did not accept the job in the end, despite after, after having passed my drug test and, and gotten the offer and all that, was that the first thing I would have to do in accepting the job was was click through um, an incredibly wide ranging, overbroad NDA. They, the just your your average um, warehouse worker has to sign an NDA, um, which is just that's in, just, just kind of incredible, and and I wasn't going to do that. So does that um, include the ones who don't actually work for Amazon? Because there's a lot of those, but work for, for subcontractors. I'm not sure if a truck driver, most of the truck drivers, you know, do not work for Amazon, even though they've got the, the jerseys in the, in the Amazon trucks and vans. I am, I'm not sure whether the, the co-contractor firms that, that hire them make them also sign one, but I definitely had to sign one in, in the warehouse. Most of the warehouse workers are now direct hires. They, they've, they've kind of, they, they rely much more on contractors a few years ago. They've now, most of them are direct hires, but the throwing of, of tax subsidies at their feet is, I think of it in two different categories. I mean, it's the, you have the warehouses and then you have HQ2, which were kind of, those, those are different orders of magnitude. The one, the one case, you're just getting a couple thousand, $15 an hour jobs. And, and then, and then for HQ2, you were getting this insane. It was, of course, originally 50,000 jobs, right? And five billion in investment or whatever it was. But in both cases, the, as it turns out, you know, the subsidies are especially confounding and kind of ludicrous because in both cases, the company ends up going there anyway. So with, with the warehouses, the company, they, they now need to be, in given places because of their promise of one or two day delivery. So um, it's not as if, if Baltimore doesn't give them their $43 million subsidy that they demanded for their first warehouse here in Baltimore back in 2014 or 15, wasn't like they could just go down to like North Carolina, like they needed a warehouse here. Um, and, and yes, like you in some states, you can kind of play off communities against each other. So um, because you can go to either this community or that community, but generally speaking, you kind of have to be in a general place, and and so, so it makes it all the more inexplicable that that these 
states and towns and cities are, are throwing these huge offers at them, um, because they're going to have to be there no matter what. Uh, they're not going to be able to walk away. And, and then similarly, as turned out with HQ2, you, they, they end up picking, of course, the two cities that made the absolute most sense in, in the first place, the most two most obvious cities. They were going to go there anyway, whether New York had, had, you know, offered them whatever it was, you know, seven billion or, you know, New York's, New York's, uh, incentives were especially embarrassing. They were, you know, f- far worse than, than, um, even the Virginia's. And, and this was to be next door to Queensbridge, which is the largest public housing development yes. in the Northern Hemisphere. And 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 I, you want to talk about a tale of two cities? Like my goodness, right? No, that and that's and that's the other part of the 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 inequality, the regional inequality issue is that the the regional disparities, these new growing unprecedented regional disparities in wealth and prosperity, of course, fuel extraordinary inequalities within the winner take all cities. You know, the more the more wealth and prosperity that gets concentrated in the winner take all cities. The more extreme things get at the top, then you just end up with this really dystopian levels of inequality in the San Francisco's and in New York's and Seattle's. And one, one counter I've heard to the sort of general premise of the book as well. Yeah, these regional disparities are a problem, but boy, these inequalities within cities are the real issue. Well, they're connected. They're absolutely connected. Uh, Alex, uh, our, our producer just asked a great question. Um, so, is it the growth and prosperity of these big cities that causes the chasm, or is it the inability of our legislators to tax and regulate things that, that's the main obstacle, in your view, to more affordable housing in cities where the rent isn't so damn high? I, I mean, of course, there can be we can do more on the tax and regulation front, but I do believe that fundamentally, that if you really want to address the, the problem, you have to deal with the problem of concentration. It's going to be hard to sort of like to kind of regulate yourself to a more affordable Seattle when you have when you have a company there that now has 50,000 high paid employees all in this one city with 25,000 more coming in Bellevue across Lake Lake Washington. Um, Can you talk about what happened there when the city council in Seattle tried to, to to get some tax revenue out of this massive employer? Right. So, and this is why it doesn't, the, the taxing regulating loan doesn't really work because you end up with such distorted politics that you run into a wall. I mean, we, what happened in Seattle was you had growing affordability crisis, second, third worst, or third worst homelessness problem in the country, just, you know, hundreds of people dying in the streets every year, you know, homeless people dying in the streets in Seattle. And, and you had an effort by progressive members of the city council and activists to pass a, New tax on large employers, um, which of course fall heaviest on the Amazon to pay for additional housing and homelessness services. And they, they actually managed to get this tax passed in the spring of 18. Amazon, um, inserts itself after having been very strikingly uninvolved in local politics in a way that you kind of what you're describing in New York with the tech giants in New York suddenly, you know, gets very involved because they're, they, do not want this tax. And they managed to basically negotiate the size of the tax down to the point where it's really quite a modest sum for a company of their extraordinary size and wealth. So they agreed to a kind of a compromise figure with the fairly centrist Seattle mayor. And then two days after she signs the tax into law, a, a big 
uh, referendum, ballot referendum to repeal the law is, is launched. Big push to get this on the, on the, on the ballot funded by Amazon and some of the other big employers in town. Um, it was just the, the, the city council members who had agreed to the lower sum and sort of, you know, worked with Amazon to try to make this all kind of manageable were aghast at the, the at the, at the sort of sheer brazenness of it and cynicism of it. And they had this incredibly well-funded referendum push. The polling suggests that it's going to pass before it even has a chance to get on the ballot. The city council basically loses its nerve and repeals the, repeals the new tax. Really just, I think it was barely, it was, it wasn't even two months after they'd signed it into law. It happened to be in town when they, when they repealed it, uh, doing reporting in Seattle. And, and there was, a, you know, big protests at city hall, but they went ahead and repealed it. And I, and then that, that day, or maybe the next day I was in the office of the chief tech industry lobbyist in Washington state. He had just come back from a, a paddle boat trip and he was gloating over the hilarity of the city council repealing a tax just a few weeks after they passed it. And what, what Amazon managed to tap into with that repeal push wasn't, it wasn't just their money alone that managed to make their repeal push effective. It was that they managed to tap into a, a real kind of ugliness in the local politics. Um, this, you know, a very, very, very liberal city that voted 93% for Hillary Clinton that was very open to Amazon's arguments that, that against this tax that, oh, you know, the city government's just going to waste the money. They're, they're not going to know what to do with it. Government doesn't really work. Plus, do you really want to risk uh, making us unhappy, making Amazon unhappy? We're the golden goose. We're the ones. It's our, it's our extraordinary success that has led your little arts and crafts bungalow that you, you know, crunchy liberal bought for 200 grand 15, 20 years ago why it's now worth a million bucks. It's because of us. And aren't you happy that you're so, that you're, that you're so rich? You now have a million dollar house. It's thanks to us. And, and are you really going to can mess with us and, and risk that we, that we decide to, to pull out? And they did in fact make the threat to cease the expansion of a couple of their new towers, um, in protest. So it was just an incredibly illuminating moment of just how it's kind of toxic and essentially, you know, kind of reactionary almost the politics can get. Um, in a city that is, that's, has this kind of levels of inequality and, and kind of a frayed, frayed fabric. One thing you bring up in passing in the book that just blew me away is I've been thinking about the uh, significant decline of uh, local reporting in New York, like the number of outlets, the quality, all that stuff is as the newspaper business was more or less, or the journalism business rather was starting to collapse and we lose a quarter of all the jobs nationally between 2005 and 2015. Talking, I think, 15,000 jobs. Sorry, I don't have the number up in front of me, but yeah. I know that's close. The, the number of reporting jobs in D.C. in this same stretch uh, doubles, which I, I thought was actually a sort of profound way of getting at the collectivization and winner-takes-all aspects of how a lot of this works, that sort of reporting on, on palace intrigue in Washington, and this precedes Trump uh, in those years, um, you know, is just much more economically beneficial than reporting on what's actually happening outside of my door or yours in Baltimore and, and, and immediately within people's lives. Absolutely. I mean, just think, to me, the iconic image of that, of that sort of shift and that concentration of the media is are those uh, those pictures you always see of the horde of reporters chasing a chasing Chuck Schumer through the Senate 
um, you know, where you have like 20 people just all with their microphones sticking out because they're all there and they're not in St. Louis. They're not in Tampa. They're not in St. Paul. They're there. When in fact, we don't really need them all to be there. We don't need 20 microphones stuck in Chuck Schumer's face. Or, you know, the other image I thought, thought of, you know, as I was, I remember when I was leaving the Washington Post, uh, where I worked for five, five or six years, I was leaving in 2011. And I just remember seeing just all these young reporters, young journalists, you know, straight out of college or J school or whatever, sitting there in the, in the fancy post newsroom with like the, the double computer screens doing aggregating, like doing, sitting there, not getting to do any actual reporting, just sort of aggregating stuff from elsewhere in the country for the post website, because that's where all the clicks were. So some crazy thing happened overnight, wherever you pick it up off the wire and you sit there and you're aggregating it instead of getting to be a young reporter out in the actual place doing real reporting. Um, no, that, that concentration is, it's so, it's such a problem because you end up with this great disconnect. I mean, one reason that this is what kind of drove me crazy in those great recession years was, was things, things were going so badly out around the country when I travel around as a reporter and I'd come back to DC and, and DC was wealthier than ever. It was getting richer than ever in those years. So much of the stimulus money was actually staying in the beltway. So DC just barely felt the recession barely at all. And then, and then you had all these reporters there who, who were, because they were there, because you're actually there, you don't know what's happening around the country. You don't know how bad it's gotten. So there was this profound disconnect. Um, and I'll just say on, on the media business front, one thing to keep in mind is that, that, you know, the main culprits, of course, in eviscerating our business are, are Google and Facebook, which now together control more than 60% of all digital ad revenue. Um, which is astonishing. I mean, that's now the bread and butter of, of media revenue. And you have these two companies that, that have almost two thirds of it. Um, but Amazon is no piker in this regard either as when it comes to destroying our business to, first of all, they are rapidly growing as a, as a third player in the digital ad revenue space. They're, they're, um, gaining fast on the other two guys. Um, and because, because of the third party sellers, right? They, they are, they're able to put such pressure on the third party sellers to pay for advertising on the site to get their products noticed. So they're making tons of money now themselves in digital revenue. But then even prior to that, of course, the destruction of brick and mortar retail has, was devastating to, to, to local newspapers. Um, our biggest display ad you know, advertisers, of course, were our is brick and mortar retail. Like all those department store ads that used to have in the paper, um, are gone. And, and that was such a huge blow to newspapers to lose that revenue. Um, the, the local Amazon warehouse is not taking out an ad in your in your local paper. I have to just jump in here to plug the book. We've been talking mostly about policy here. The history in here about regional department stores and how those worked, about uh, Sparrow's Point in Baltimore and how labor and manufacturing worked rightly or wrongly. At different points and the, uh, the the sometimes dignity of that labor and and the human stories that the, the book is layered in are, are really incredible. So there's lots and lots of of policy and heft. But to me, just as a reader, uh, you know, getting a sense of, of, of a visceral sense of how individual people's lives were affected and, and and of the ways in which these institutions shaped the regional places they were in was just remarkable. I know you've been doing a ton of these interviews. And uh, mostly, sadly, again, over Zoom, uh, just, just given the state of the world, I thought an interesting closing question here might, might just be, 
How is the book selling uh, on Amazon, uh, if you know? And how is it doing in local bookstores as they've largely, and in New York, almost entirely remained uh, closed inside to the public? Um, so I, I, I can't, of course, see the, the Amazon ranking, and it's, and it's gone up and down. And it's definitely – there are quite a few people who are choosing to buy the book there, which is fine. Like people are going to have to going to buy it where they can find it, whatever's most convenient for them. Um, and – the I'm using side note on this. I did buy myself the book from Amazon as a sort of a test to see how it went. I pre-ordered it way back in February, and and bizarrely, it arrived a week late. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that that was just me. That wasn't like something some some more general um, thing that's that going on there. But they have so far not done what they did to Brad Stone's book uh, on Amazon, the Everything Store. Very good, you know, kind of comprehensive look at the company itself that came out some years ago and, and that that book was briefly yanked from the site which caused an outcry with independent stores there are a whole lot of people of course who are deliberately making the just the choice to buy this book at independent booksellers which is great um, because they really need the support and it's and it's fitting in a way to buy the book there um, it's it's harder to, to track those sales there's no there's no single number like there's with the Amazon but I I do hope that the the book has a very natural 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 selling constituency in those stores. The, these booksellers are out around the country who who've known the Amazon threat um, more intimately for many years, you know, long before the rest of us did. And a lot of them are very excited about the book. And it's and I do hope that their support is able to translate into readers, despite the fact that a lot of them are not fully open. So it's the booksellers want have the book and the, you know, are giving it a prominent place, which is great. But if people aren't really coming into the stores, then it, it, it somewhat uh, undercuts the value of that promotion, that placement. So it's all the more reason for people to, uh, to get the heck out of our, our Warrens now and, and back into the world so that um, you can see this beautiful book that is prominently displayed in your local store. I just checked. It's right now. It's selling for twenty four dollars with free one day shipping on Amazon. I ordered from from Windsor Terrace Books, which is by me for, for cover price, which is twenty eight dollars, and got it like you know nine days later. I picked it up there, um, and, and just thinking about different conveniences. And I had a stretch where I was just buying a ton of used books actually on Amazon because it was a very convenient marketplace for that. Uh, it, it's just. I really want to have booksellers there when I come out. I want to have uh, restaurants. I want to have retailers that aren't uh, aren't aren't just like dollar stores and chain pharmacies and things like that. And I, I've had to rework my math in almost like a casino sense, where it's just hard to think about big numbers. And most most people sucker themselves that the convenience of having the toilet paper show up and be two dollars less for the case is 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 really exceeded by by the inconvenience of wait, there's nowhere I can walk to to get toilet paper or to browse books in person or things like that. Right. Tim Wu nailed this. I mean, Tim, he's the great writer on antitrust issues who's now actually gone into the Biden White House, which is a big deal. And um, and he's he wrote a piece a couple years ago called The Tyranny of Convenience, which is essentially that if you choose to buy, buy an Amazon instead of the hardware store that's three miles away because you just decide that Amazon is more convenient, that hardware store will eventually go away. And you'll next be faced having to go to one 10 miles away. And 
And so, of course, Amazon then becomes more convenient. So it is a, it's, pr it's pretty basic how that vicious cycle works. Um, so the convenience argument logic kind of feeds on itself in a very uh, unhealthy way. And if you, if you, if you don't kind of catch it early. As a, someone who soothed my, uh, my anxiety by, by smoking through it for years, I can, uh, I can relate to this set of problems. Yes. <laughs> Alec, it's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you again for taking the time. And I can't wait to see what you're working on now, now and next. The book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, and everyone should get it uh, from Amazon if they need to, but ideally from a uh, local bookseller. Thanks. Thanks so much, Harry. F-A-Q. <laughs> FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of The Brick House. That's thebrick.house, cooperative of independent journalists and artists. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan and the city of Baltimore. Our executive producer is Alexandra Brooklyn. Our engineer and sound master is Adam Kamara. Big thank you to our guest this week, ProPublica's Alec McGillis. I can't say be safe and wear a mask anymore because the CDC guidance has changed, but be good and love one another, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. How was that? Adam, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I'm not wearing headphones. <sighs> oh, yeah, well, that's on me too, because I was looking right at you. <laughs>